Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The Raptors and the Warriors. I spoke with Ron Foxcroft about that, as well as Dr. Bjorn Lomborg on climate false alarms. We got into the small business of Canada, the major employers in this country. Discussion with the CFIB's Dan Kelly. Also, Lee Lowry and Ron Casey were with us. You may remember Lee Lowry. She's the woman who was visited by RCMP officers two hours after she got home from driving. Well, Ron Casey is a former RCMP officer. He wanted to get in on the discussion, so we did it. And Jeff Manishan, criminal lawyer in Ontario, spoke about that particular piece of legislation and shared his points of view. Some of what you'll hear on the podcast this time. Tickets are still available for those of you who would like to sit on the floor on the west side. Uh, there are two tickets available at $62,622 each. And you have to buy them both. You don't get to just buy one. You have to buy them both. So about 126000 or so will get you on the floor in those choice seats for tomorrow night's game. That's a little steep for you. Right? That's just a little bit past the... You know, the uh, the bread and milk budget. There's less expensive seating available. Also on the floor, $31,500. And another one, this is bargain basement price. This is 24750 Now, who can't afford that? 24750 Okay, so if you can't afford that, let me go down to the least expensive seat that is available. The least, no, hold it, hold on, stop. It's not a seat. It's standing room. The least available space you can occupy tomorrow night at the game is going to cost you $1,395. That's Balcony Sideline 319. I just want you to be aware if you want to go out and get it. Balcony Sideline <laughs> $1,395 is the least expensive ticket at StubHub. All right. Ron Foxcroft joins me as we've been talking to Foxy over the last week or two as we've been getting closer and closer to this Raptors NBA championship. They're going to play one more game and then it'll be lights out for the Warriors. It's got to be. It's, it's inevitable. This team is playing with such incredible um, determination, the Raptors are. Ron is a former NCAA Division One referee, the only Canadian to referee of that level, named by Referee Magazine among the world's top 50 uh, sports officials of all time, and the inventor of the Fox 40 whistle, which is used by all the officials in the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, the NCAA, and I'm forgetting somebody, but it's 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 the world's number one whistle, the Fox 40, and he's also an Order of Canada recipient, so we're very proud of him. Uh, so $62,600, that's it's not bad, eh? Roy, that's a little above our uh, grocery budget. I'm thinking I couldn't even raise the collateral for the loan. We couldn't even <laughs> buy, after paying that, we couldn't even buy a dozen golf balls, let alone the guest fee at our favorite golf establishment. Isn't this amazing? Isn't really this is. exciting? I I have to tell you, Roy, I, I think it's uh, become definitely, well, I, I know it's become definitely more exciting than 1993 when the Toronto Blue Jays won the Major League Baseball Championship, the World Series, and uh, uh, Canadians were, were so proud. But uh, this is more, and I, I was watching on TV on Friday night, and all these uh, Jurassic Park's uh, 
everywhere in Regina, in Halifax, in Vancouver, everywhere, Calgary, yeah. Jurassic Park to watch the Toronto Raptors, clearly Canada's team. Hey, Fox, in Toronto, there was, there was a photograph. I saw the photograph of the guy three days before the game started, before the game. He's lining up in Jurassic Park. He's three days. So I'm thinking, how does the guy not lose his place in line and go, go to the bathroom? Sometime in that 72 hours, he's going to need a bathroom. Uh, they are, Roy, and isn't it incredible? But I, I To stand outside. To, <laughs> <laughs> I need to tell you, uh, being in the business of basketball and sport my entire life, this series is not over. I do not think the uh, Golden State Warriors, they're the champions. And champions, as, as you know, because you and I are undefeated on the golf course <laughs> against anybody, uh, champions don't lay down. And, no, and they don't. They are well coached. I know they're beat up, but so is Toronto. Toronto's yeah. beat up. And, and um, Roy, I need to tell you, kudos to the Toronto Raptors medical staff, in particular, Alex McKechnie, Director of Sports Science, and Scott McCullough, the um, uh, physiotherapist. Uh, kudos to them because nobody is 100%, including Freddie Van Vliet, who took seven stitches in the face. Uh, somebody said he looks more like a hockey player than a basketball player now. Uh, that's funny because these medical people are, are um, they're copying now what the hockey pe uh, people do. The hockey people people they just the medical uh, personnel they just stitch you up and send get back out there and That's play right. as Don Cherry says. I have to ask you something now. You're the one with all the basketball experience. You have decades of basketball experience refereeing at the highest level, including the Olympic gold medals. You're in the Canadian Basketball Hall of Fame. You know the game inside out. You've been on the floor for some of the most important and some of the most uh, emotional games, not only among the players but certainly for the fans in the in the uh, in the stands and I mean, you got beaten up by fans, uh, and that's how the Fox 40 whistles started. Well, that's another story. We'll tell it again another day. But here we are. It's three games to one. They're coming home. This is a team with determination. Uh, you say the Warriors aren't out of it, and I don't think they are. Maybe Kevin Durant will play. Maybe he won't. But I think this is a team that has such determination, Fox, and they have such belief in themselves. You know what it's like out on the floor. Is that what you see? I see that, Roy, uh, determination, passion, and sacrifice. I believe to a person on the Toronto Raptors, they are forgetting it's three games to one. Their focus is on we must win the next game. They're not looking beyond that, and that's terrific because, as you know, there's potentially three more games. But I really believe, uh, thanks to uh, Nick Nurse, a shout-out shout to Nick Nurse, uh, he has done an incredible job. Steve Kerr is an amazing coach for the Golden State Warriors. He's been a coach for five years, been in the NBA Finals five years, five times. And Nick Nurse is making the adjustments. And could I give you an example? On sure. Friday night, Marcus Saul in the first half, he was struggling. And Nick Nurse identified that, inserted Serge Abaca. Serge Abaca took control of the second half. And, and you know better than anybody, Roy, the game is, is all about how you adjust in the third period, how you adjust in the fourth period, and the key adjustments you make in the final three minutes.
Yes, it's so critically important. And something else here, Fox. When I'm watching these players, when they go to uh, to uh, to the seats on the uh, during the timeouts or times out—that's the word. It's times out, not timeouts. Yeah, times out. When 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 they go and sit down or they go and huddle, they're listening to Nick Nurse. He has their ear. They're paying attention to what he says. I don't always see that with players and coaches. I've seen players turn and walk away from the coach while the coach is still talking. Nick yep. Nurse has their attention. You um, you know, you notice uh, LeBron, uh, when his coach is talking, he's just turning away and gazing. And, and you know, one of the most difficult things, these, these players in the heat of the battle can only absorb so much. And, uh, yes, that's a great observation you've made. These players are absorbing everything that Nick Nurse is saying and making his adjustments. I think it's incredible. The other incredible thing, one of the the most difficult jobs, and I've seen this of a coach in the big-time NBA, managing egos. Because, you know, mm-hmm. you get someone like Serge Ibaka, who, who contained everybody in the second half, but he didn't start the game. And, you know, I've seen egos uh, with players in the NBA. When they weren't starters, they went back to the bench and sulked and came out in the, in the second half when, when they got their chance and didn't play the way they should play. But it's great. Uh, but I also must say this. The players on Golden State are listening to Steve Kerr as well. You've made another point. Uh, Kevin Durant, uh, the term is, is, is lurking. I think the Golden State Warriors are now in, in a slight panic, uh, not an extraordinary panic, a slight panic, and, and they say that Kevin Durant, arguably one of the two best players in the entire NBA, is lurking. If he plays... Clay Thompson plays, and when Clay Thompson plays, uh, Draymond Green plays a faster game, kind of resembling Russell Westbrook. You know what? I, I just think that when you've been out as long as Kevin Durant has been out, and he's got the, the calf problems, uh, even if he comes back tomorrow night, he's not going to be playing at his maximum ability. There's going to be some... There's going to be some conditioning issues, and there's going to be some lingering issues with the legs. I, I You know what? I fully expect him to suit up. Uh, I do, too, Roy. And, and you know, there's, there's a, a practice performance and a game performance. You cannot possibly imitate a game performance in practice. You can do your best, but once the whistle blows, uh, it's a different environment. So, yes, with Kevin... Uh, being one of the two best players in the NBA, there will be a little bit of rust, but there'll be uh, more than a little bit of a a timing adjustment uh, with your legs, with your timing, with your shot, with your defense, and so on. So uh, I I think Nick Nurse is smart enough to be able to make that adjustment and perhaps exploit Kevin Durant. However, there's still, you know, Steph's going to get his 30, and he's going to score his trace, probably shooting from Burlington or Waterdown. And Clay Thompson is one of the best players in the NBA. So this game tomorrow night, um, it's going to be, it's, it's, well, obviously it's a must game uh, more for Golden State. And, and uh, they're, they're not going to lay down, Roy. The fan says, the fan in me says, I'm agreeing with what I'm hearing the commentators say. The refs are favoring the Warriors. What's wrong with my 
with my observation. Well, Roy, I have to disagree with you. I don't often disagree with you, but that's a bunch of bunk. It really is. Now, let me just tell you, and I'll remind you, uh, the games that Toronto won, game one and game four, and we talked about this, the referees were unnoticed. That is the greatest compliment you can get. Now, the game that Toronto lost, let me make a couple of observations. Many calls uh, that were correct went against the Toronto Raptors. That doesn't mean they were incorrect calls. They just went against the, the Toronto Raptors. The other thing, uh, the game they lost, if you recall, Clay Thompson ran off for 11 points in the very first quarter. Now, there's many factors in winning an NBA game, and that is, number one, the number of fouls on your key players, uh, the, uh, how you make adjustments on calls that go against you, uh, you know, whether it affects your game, your emotion, your shot. You can be off a centimeter uh, emotionally and your three-point shots are off and suddenly you go fruit two for 20 from the three-point line. So, yes, uh, fans look at the game, Roy, a lot different than I do. So fans when I'm watching, so it. let me. So so I'm watching the game, all right. Yeah. And I see a replay, and I, I hear the play-by-play uh, -play and the color guys saying, "Whoa, whoa!" They blew that one, and then they show me the replay in slow motion, and even I can see that they blew it. Oh, there's incorrect calls. There's no question. But you know something, Roy? There's no such a thing as an even-up call. But calls do even out at the end of the game. And, yes, let's say uh, the NBA referees, the guys on this uh, game tomorrow night, uh, they've worked probably close to 100 games. They're ready. They're trained. Yeah. They know their mechanics. I don't doubt it. And, yes, do they miss calls? Absolutely. Do they admit to missing calls? Absolutely. Do they normally even out? Yes, they do, Roy. So God bless you for the fan in you. And and I would bet... I don't want to raise your blood pressure, you know that. Well, you're raising my blood pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? Raise mine often enough. <laughs> you look at it different than I do. A call that goes against the Raptors in, in, in your determination is a bad call, correct? That's right, absolutely. No question. Absolutely. So even though, you know, they, they have to stay calm, they have to make adjustments, and um, I didn't think the Toronto team made adjustments in the game they lost. Number one, Clay Thompson killed them. Number two, they didn't make adjustments for the calls that were going against them. But honestly, Roy, I really I like the officiating in uh, in the NBA finals. Okay, so I I know who's working game five, six, and seven, and yeah. I'm very happy about that. Okay, so um, so what do you look for? I've got about a minute here. So what do you look for when you're watching a game? What tells you uh, who's who's probably how early do you know? Just your gut tell you who's going to win it, and and what do you look for? What does Ron Foxcroft look for? I, I, I look for momentum swings. I look for momentum swings in the first half because these two teams are so well coached. They're just feeling each other out. It's like a prize fight. It's like Rocky Marciano or or Muhammad Ali uh, feeling them out in the first ten rounds in a fifteen uh, round uh, fight. But uh, what I look for is them feeling each other out, making the adjustments. The championship teams come off the mat 
in the second half, and I look for a slight streak momentum change in the third quarter, particularly the last five minutes. A lot of NBA games, you can get a real gut feel on how things are going in the last five minutes of the third quarter and the final three minutes of the game. Okay, so five seconds left. Does home court advantage really matter? It really does. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks a lot. I know, you, I know you're going to go for a long walk now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for raising my blood pressure, Roy, on a Sunday afternoon. I, I owed you that one. <laughs> thanks, Roy. Fox. It's always a pleasure. You do, you do a great job on thanks. your show, and it is my pleasure to be on All it. Right. Great, great talking to you. Ron Foxcroft on the Roy Green Show, and the whole country's excited. So I was reading uh, a column by Dr. Bjorn Lomborg uh, in the Wall Street Journal examining the latest false alarms on climate. Dr. Lomborg heads the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank, and they include Nobel laureates, who is also named by Time to the world's 100 most influential list. He's the author of many best-selling books, and the one that people will immediately respond to is... Cool it. Well, Dr. Lomborg, good to have you back on the show. Roy, it's good to be back. So let's let's start with the cool it. Um, just the the words. Now I, I saw and I was on your on your Twitter account at Bjorn Lomborg. I, I saw that you retweeted NPR, National Public Radio in the United States, saying we all owe Al Gore an apology. Because apparently uh, there's a tremendous amount of, of damage from floods and, 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 and all sorts of things, tornadoes and all sorts of things that, that Gore's been, been predicting. And you, and you replied what? Well, uh, look, to, 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 um, uh, to be honest, what they were saying was that they had been out talking to a lot of people who had experienced you know, all the flood in the, mid, uh, in the Midwest and the U.S. and all the tornadoes in the Midwest. And they're all saying, oh, it really seems a lot like Al Gore was right. But of course, you can't actually trust just your experience just now. This is why we have the UN Climate Panel telling us what are up and down on this. And if you look at the data, we've seen fewer and fewer of the really strong tornadoes in the U.S. And actually, when you look also at the cost of U.S. flooding, it's come down dramatically. It used to cost about half a percent of GDP when it flooded. Now it costs less than 0.1%. So both of these places, there is not an indication that this is getting worse. Actually, it's getting less worse. And the UN Climate Panel tells us they can't predict any increases in tornadoes in the future, and they can't predict anything about flooding in the future either. And I looked at another tweet that you put out since 1950. The number of U.S. violent tornadoes, that's ER 4 and 5, has more than halved. So, so in the last 70 years, less than half the number of EF 4 and 5 tornadoes, which is one of Gore's predictions. Well, Gore, uh, and I think this this tells you very well what happened. Uh, Gore showed you a graph in his movie, The Very Famous and Inconvenient Truth. He showed you uh, 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 a graph where you actually see there's more and more tornadoes. What he didn't tell you was that that's because you now have 
Doppler radar, so you can see a lot of tornadoes that nobody could see before, and hence the number of really, really small tornadoes has uh, almost uh, uh, tripled, and they're much, much more important. Uh, sorry, there are m many more of them than there are of these big, uh, ferocious uh, tornadoes. And that's, of course, why the U.S. Institute that handles this, the NOAA, they tell you don't use this number because it can give the incorrect impression that tornadoes are going up. This is just a question of us being better able to measure them. But if you measure the strong hurricanes, as you mentioned, the four and fives, they've declined by more than half. You have never said and you, that, that, that humans don't affect cli climate. You believe that very strongly. But for, for you, Dr. Lomborg, it's always been about, and I want to get to your, the column that you wrote in the Wall Street Journal in just a second. But for you, it's always been about in our conversation how to most appropriately spend the trillions of dollars that they want us to spend in a, in a way that most benefits the people who need it the most and will, in fact, help the world the most. Exactly. And, and, and also, realistically, we're probably not going to be able to spend a trillion dollars. So if we only get $100 billion or $200 billion, let's make sure we spend those in the very best way first. Let me quote from your column, or at least start, uh, read a line or two, and then ask you to pick up on that. You started the column where this is the one in the Wall Street Journal that's running currently, or in one of the most current editions of the paper. You've probably seen the latest alarming headlines. Rising sea levels from climate change could flood 187 million people out of their homes, you say. Don't believe it, because the reality is... What they do is they quote a, a, a fairly old paper from 2011 where they looked at what would happen if sea levels rose dramatically and nobody did anything for the next 80 years. Well, if nobody does anything, if you just keep your dikes at the same level and nobody cares, uh, you know, water starts seeping in and eventually, yes, you will have 187 million people that will have to move. But the reality is that very same paper goes in and then asks, well, what happens if people just spend a tiny bit of money on adapting? That is, they spend a tiny bit of money on actually being smart. And the tiny bit is less than 0.02% of GDP. If that happens, almost nobody will get flooded. They estimate instead of the 187 million people, it's probably more likely to be less than 300 that is one six hundredth of what these guys were telling you. And this is very typical for the conversation in climate today. You hear these enormous numbers, and they're caveated by this very incredible, oh, oh if nobody does anything, then it's true. Well, but that's not how the world works. We actually adapt. And then, of course, we can handle much, much bigger issues with much less damage. But for politicians who are looking for public office, uh, it's <laughs> the, the first part of the headline is far more to their advantage, and that's what they're going to use. And you touch on that, or you get at that in your column as well. Sober findings get less attention than alarming and far-fetched speculation. So actually, they're being uh, disingenuous with their own audience and with intent. And my, my sense is, I have no idea where this, I think it sort of seeps out uh, along the line. I think many politicians just simply pick up on these headlines and say, oh, the scientists are telling us this. What the scientists are telling us is, 
if you don't do anything, and there's some scientific reasons for why you might want to do that simulation, then you'll have 187 million people flooded. If you do something, almost nobody will get flooded. But then the people who write the press releases, the people who push this out in the papers, the papers themselves, obviously, get many more clicks if they just write 187 million are going to get flooded. But the reality is, we end up spending trillions of uh, dollars, or at least promising to pay trillions of dollars on these almost fake stories, or certainly dramatically exaggerated stories. And that's the insidiousness of climate alarmism, that we're constantly being told this is the end of the world, whereas in reality, this is a problem, something that we need to tackle, but please let's tackle it smartly and let's remember compared to almost every other area in the world, it's a fairly small issue. Well, you also write that uh, the speculation is, and I've heard this over and over and over, sea levels will rise almost three feet during the next 80 years or so. And then you write, yet no one thinks to change the height of a single dike anywhere in the world. (laughs) And And, and I don't know why I'm laughing because it's not funny. But it is. Well, but it, it's, it's funny that people get away with saying yeah. that. And, and, and you know, again, as I pointed out, scientifically, it makes sense to make a scenario where you don't make anyone change anything else, because what you're then doing is something that can easily be compared to other people's studies. But if you're actually going to inform policy, then, of course, you have to remember that even very, very poor communities tackle sea level rising very, very simply. Remember, and there's you know some good evidence from this just out, uh, for instance, in Jakarta, uh, because they've pulled out lots and lots of water from the underground for drinking water. Uh, some parts of Jakarta has actually dropped almost five meters uh, in a couple of decades. And since Jakarta was already on the, uh, on, on pretty much on, on sea level, uh, that means many parts of Jakarta is now underwater in the sense that they're underneath the water surface. But Jakarta is not underwater because even a fairly poor country is able to tackle this very easily and effectively. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no problems in Jakarta, but fundamentally it means that we, when we're rich and when we're knowledgeable, we're very easily able to deal with sea level rise. This is just simply not one of those we're all gonna drown scenarios. Actually, the studies themselves show very, very few people will have to move. And that's the that's a very important point. The studies actually show it themselves. So if the politicians and some people in media were to look beyond the headlines and actually have a look at the study, they'd understand what the truth of the situation is. Yes. But unfortunately, as you just pointed out, a lot of people just simply want to talk about this uh, almost, uh, you know, some people in Britain call this uh, climate porn. You know, it's just much, much more fun to talk about how we're all going to die, how it's all going to flood, how it's all going to be terrible. But the reality is this is the exact same kind of scare stories that we've heard for 50 years or more. We're going to be doomed a couple of decades because if we don't manage to think of anything, if we're not smart, we're just all going to drown or something. But of course, the reality is we are actually smart and we can actually handle it. Again, this does not mean global warming is not a problem. We would rather have sea levels didn't rise three feet. But the point is we can handle it and we know we can handle it. 
at very low cost. One of the things that you've talked about a great deal is how money can be spent to, in fact, improve the lives of billions of people on this planet. And the point you make repeatedly is we're actually doing a pretty good job of Im- of, of improving life on Earth for, for so many people. So what's the, um, what's the formula that really makes sense to move forward in a cohesive and coherent manner? So as you point out, we are actually moving in the right direction. We brought over a billion people out of poverty on pretty much all accounts. We live much longer, we have better education, we're better fed, all these kinds of things. It's moving in the right direction. So the question is, how can you then spend extra dollars to make sure that there's, you know, there's still a lot of problems, how you fix those best? That's actually what my think tank does. We work with some of the best economists, as you mentioned before, uh, seven Nobel laureates in economics to look at where can you spend a dollar and help the most. And the simple answer is it's free trade. Free trade lifts out lots of people from poverty. It's contraception. It basically means that women have more opportunity both to work, to have uh, space their kids better so that they can uh, invest more in each one of these kids. And that brings huge benefits every dollar spent. We'll do about $120 worth of good. Uh, Immunization, uh, dealing with tuberculosis, dealing with malaria, uh, give these cheap heart attack pills that many uh, in the Western world uh, take, and they're very, very cheap. They're generic now and we could bring them out to the developing world. There are lots of great ideas out there. We should be focusing on these. Of course, they don't have the advantage of being this scary drama that you can clickbait on on all the news pages. It just so happens to be some of the best ways to spend the money. I'm just going to read a a line from a column that you wrote that appeared in the the, uh, uh, New York Daily News, I think it is, And uh, this is what, May 29th, ever notice how in the last decade or so, we quietly stopped just having storms and started having extreme weather events. It feels like no temperature drop or seasonal downpour is too small for the media to slap a scary name on it and issue minute-by-minute warnings. Well, now some news outlets and campaigners are trying to do the exact same thing for climate change itself. And we're seeing that, and we're hearing it, and we're hearing people say, and it's, it's been suggested in the United States, we're also hearing it suggested in this country, that we no longer talk about climate change, but we, call it, we, we, we talk about climate emergency. That has to be the new term. Yeah. And, and, and again, of course, that's a way to get you scared enough that you're going to cough up with trillions of dollars. Imagine if I suggested, I'm not suggesting that, but imagine if I suggest that we called it the climate trifle. People would be outraged because clearly you can't say that. But likewise, you shouldn't be able to change the scientifically defined word of climate change into something that sounds more scary, especially when the UN climate panel itself has looked at how much will global warming actually cost? And they estimate that by the 2070s, the impact of unmitigated global warming, that is if we don't do anything until the 2070s, the impact will cost somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. Now, that's the equivalent of about a, a one recession. That's certainly something we'd like to uh, avoid, but it's not a crisis. It's not a catastrophe. It's not an existential crisis. It's a problem. And that's a big difference, because if you say it's a crisis, you get people saying, we should treat it like World War III. We should allow ourselves to you know, uh, basically just eat porridge and, and throw everything we have and the kitchen sink at global war. No, 
what we should be doing is spend smart resources on tackling global warming, but also remembering that there are many other problems that are much more important and that matter much more to actually making sure people are well off in the future. Dr. Lomborg, thank you very much for the time. I think there'd be a lot more international buy-in if uh, the position you're putting forward were understood and, and repeated and, in fact, became the norm. I really appreciate talking to you always. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, it's uh, CopenhagenConsensus.com is the webpage. At Bjorn Lomborg on Twitter, at Bjorn Lomborg, that's B-J-O-R-N-L-O-M-B-O-R-G. And among his books, Cool It and the Skeptical Environmentalist. Dan Kelly is back with us, President CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, thanks for coming back, and uh, maybe we can pick it up. Uh, with with the release of the small business platform by the CFIB uh, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, we uh, we put forward our recommendations for the upcoming federal election. Uh, remember, there was a, a lot of discussion during the 2015 campaign about small business. Some commitments made, then some commitments broken, uh, then commitments reinstated. So we're hoping what we're going to get uh, in this election is uh, some some heavy duty promises promises from all of the parties, and then delivery on those promises once a new government is elected. And we we think that we put forward some ideas that 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 will appeal to each political party and find things where they may be able to fi- uh, find common ground with the small business community. They need it because there's a whole bunch of small business owners that even though the economy's in in reasonably good shape, are quite worried about their futures. Well, and and I want to read you that email that I received from the Calgary small business owner. And I was just looking. We we spoke yesterday about the unemployment numbers. I did some more reading and and, and checking on that this morning. And it seems that the majority of the jobs created, if I have this correctly, in the month of May were self-employment jobs. Yeah, you know, this is... Stat can actually put out some really interesting information uh, on uh, on self-employment. Uh, yet self-employment numbers are up, which is a good thing. More com- more companies are are starting. More people are looking to start businesses, and that's a tremendous thing. Sometimes they're doing that because they uh, they see a terrific business opportunity. Sometimes they're doing that because they are locked out of the labor market and feel a little bit like nobody's going to hire them for the kind of job that they want. Either way, uh, it is a good thing that more people are t- willing to take a risk on entrepreneurship. One of the things that came out of, the, of a StatCan release uh, also just last week is why people are self-employed. There's a lot of people that think that if you're self-employed, you're doing it uh, because your employer is just too pay- cheap to pay, pay you as a regular employee. Uh, but this actually showed that ma- the majority of self-employed, I think it was 95%, are choosing self-employment, or they're not doing that because they would actually prefer a full-time job. Yeah, it's 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 always worthwhile to dig a little deeper than the first two lines of a release. You're absolutely right. There's a whole bunch of things going on beyond the headlines uh, of our economic condition. And, you know, even though the economy is reasonably good and the unemployment rate is quite low, uh, there are some real worries on the part of, of entrepreneurs these days. So our level of optimism, we do something at CFIB called the Small Business uh, Barometer, uh, and in the Business Barometer, they actually showed that optimism is well below its kind of optimal level. So the conditions are not, not as they should be in terms of getting small businesses operating at their full potential, and every time they don't do that, that means that we're not able to, as a country, 
uh, you know, fight at our weight uh, or, or above it. And that's something that we've got to take seriously. Let me read you the email that I received from a Calgary business owner. Hello, Mr. Green. Uh, when you're speaking with CFIB Dan Kelly, please raise the issue of crazy business property taxes and out-of-control spending, disrespect for taxpayer dollars at Calgary City Hall. Rally on Monday. Fire them all. Thank you. Now, I don't expect you to respond to all of that, but that's a concern of a business owner, and I suspect that business owner is not alone. Well, Roy, you're absolutely right. I lived in Calgary for about a decade, and I saw this uh, happening in slow motion. Uh, it was absolutely scandalous what was happening year after year. The business community in Calgary was doing well, certainly during the oil boom. So governments at that time think, well, you know what, what's another few percent here, a little bit more here, a little another fee there, uh, process step on top of a process step. That's not going to make uh, much difference. And governments often, you hear this from governments, well, you know what, we have to increase this tax, but it's only a cup of coffee a day. It's only going to be, you know, a few hundred dollars a year for this Canadian or a few thousand dollars for this small business. Well, you know, you can get away with that uh, one year, maybe even two years. But when you do that 10 times, when you do that year after year, you end up creating such staggering levels of taxation that business owners are facing. And then when you throw on top of it uh, an economic contraction, as happened in the oil and gas sector, people are unprepared. You've now taxed them out of existence. And the feeling that so many business owners have, not just in Calgary, in many municipalities across the country, is that, that politicians are ramping up spending and throw in the bill to small and medium-sized companies. And, and there is a day of reckoning, and we're feeling that right now in the city of Calgary. Yep. And when arrogance is added to the goulash, it doesn't help either. No, it sure doesn't. The messaging from governments has not been particularly strong. Now, to admittedly, council is looking at some emergency measures to try to reduce uh, tax rates on, on small and medium-sized companies in Calgary, and I commend them from at least at this 11th hour looking at it. But the time to fix the problem is when you're actually going through the year after year after year of, of change that you're that you're looking to make on property tax rates, when you're looking at spending. Yeah, you know what? We can give our employees an above-average wage increase this year. It's not going to cause too much pressure. But, but, you know, these chickens come home to roost. They always do. Yeah. Your brakes don't usually suddenly completely fail. You get some warnings along the way. And if you ignore that... <laughs> you're absolutely right. And I, I commend the business community in Calgary for standing up against this. You, we have seen lots of stories coming out about business owners up in arms about this. And I, I would encourage business owners, especially, you know, connecting this to the federal election campaign, to make some noise in this federal election. Yep. Remember, during the 2017 tax fight, the federal government did back down on about at least about half of what they had proposed to do. They would not have done that had business owners in this country not been super upset not belong to associations like mine and, and others, and collectively not start to push back. But business bu business people are super busy. They only do that when they're really feeling up against it. I'm hoping that in the, in the 2019 campaign, entrepreneurs make their voices heard and heard loudly uh, among their, their candidates when they come knocking on their door for support. Very important, because you've got their ear. When they want something from you, then you certainly have their ear. Dan, uh, the story of the uh, the beer store decision in the province of Ontario has, well, it's got people firing from all 32 compass points. What's the CFIB view? 
Well, look, we're standing on the side of independent businesses, and I have to tell you, we just saw uh, Doug Ford, Premier Ford, at uh, at our annual meeting, CFIB's annual meeting uh, this past week in, in Toronto, uh, where he spoke to independent business owners about a whole host of issues, including uh, the beer store decision. Ontario has, for those for your listeners outside of Ontario, has this incredibly regressive system. I was absolutely shocked when I moved here. I grew up in Manitoba, then in Alberta, finally moving to Ontario. And uh, while I'm not a beer drinker, I've gone to buy some for guests from time to time. And you stand in line, uh, basically in front of a conveyor belt. You tell the guy what you want, and it comes out to you like like you are in some sort of backwards Russian movie. It's it's just incredible. So the, the provincial government, this has been part of a sweetheart deal. Many people think that the beer is sold by the government itself. It's so bad. But in fact, it's, it's even worse than government selling beer. It's a private sector monopoly given to uh, some large multinationals by, uh, by the province itself. That contract was recently renewed. The new government in Ontario, the uh, Ford government, decided that they're going to actually change it and allow... All you know, allow small corner stores to sell beer. Imagine that. <laughs> That's something that exists. In sure, the sky is going to fall for sure. The sky is falling. Ontario. The beer store employees are freaking out. The unions are freaking out. There are some business groups, including the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, that have also spoken out against this uh, because the government is having to tear up a contract in order to do it. And while I get the Ontario Chamber's concern, I don't like governments ripping up contracts once they've been signed by their predecessors. The bigger win for those of us that care about free enterprise is that they're replacing a monopoly with competition, and that's always a good thing. Well, you know, I lived in Quebec for 10 years recently, came back to Ontario in 2016, and uh, it was just second nature. If you wanted a six-pack, you went to the corner store. They usually had one where I lived, one little gas pump, so you'd fill up your car, and then you go in and get a loaf of... uh, of uh, you get a baguette and you get your six pack and you get your cheese from the monastery and and you'd go home. I I came back to Ontario. First thing I did was going to a corner store and so where's the beer? It, it is shocking because <laughs> and I got the, redirected to the model that we're down using, the street. The model we use in Ontario is 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 from you know decades ago. The, the beer stores had a monopoly for almost a hundred years. Uh, and, and gosh, a lot has changed, and, and it's time for us to have an updated beer uh, retail model. I have to tell you, we've got thousands of independent businesses that are looking forward to having another product line on their shelves, a, a yeah, profitable one. I'm sure. And that's a good thing. Dan, good talking to you. Thanks for coming back and uh, finishing the interview. No problem. Thanks so much. All the best. Dan Kelly, President, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Lee Lowry, British Columbia resident, who, as you will recall if you were with us last weekend, was forced by the RCMP to submit to a breathalyzer, and this is about two hours after she got home from driving. She'd been out for lunch with her boyfriend, or on the way home they'd stopped for lunch. They'd had one drink each, and then they got home, and, and she got a call from the RCMP saying they had something they wanted to talk to her about, and so she said, fine, come on over, and they did, five of them. And uh, ultimately, she was forced to take a breathalyzer test, and this is hours after she got home. And uh, they stripped her of her driver's license for 90 days and took the car for 10 days. And that meant she couldn't do her work. Not only that, there's a stigma that goes with all of that. Ms. Lowry went to court. Uh, she fought them on it and cost her 3500 bucks. But uh, the... Uh, 
a result of the breathalyzer. The fact that they did it was overturned. She's still out the $3,500. Hi, Lee. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me. And and I I still describe this correctly, right? Um. Yes. It was just it was a it was actually a thirty day impound and a ninety day license. Thirty day impound, but the, but the rest of it, and we'll get into it a little more. But the rest of the basics, I got correctly. Yes, that's so make sure of that. Ron Casey got in touch with me. He's a retired RCMP officer, 40 years as an officer, and uh, he sent me an email. Ron, good to have you with us. Uh, kudos to you, Roy. I've listened to you for a while, and I've always learned something every time I tuned in, and I can't think of any other broadcaster that can get two premiers and a former premier on a show for the second segment. That's amazing. Thank you. I'm a truly amazing human being, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, for, thank you for the good words. I just want to quote from your email to me. I'm appalled at the recent machinations by the crown, the courts, the bureaucrats, and the police. The current impairment driving laws are draconian. The 24-hour driving suspension was supposed to give the police a practical tool to keep borderline impaired drivers off the road. It was utilized for someone who had slight signs that they'd been drinking, but it didn't reach the level of impairment. However, the police um, are required... Uh, let me see here. Still uh, required grounds to administer the temporary suspension. There was no criminal charge, no fine, and no further sanctions. In the time it took to uh, investigate, this is my printer's problem, one impaired driving investigation, you could get 10 drivers off the road. The temporary roadside suspension process is now a set or a debacle, which includes a plethora of sanctions which are unnecessary. So what happened to Ms. Lowry, I, I, you, you find disturbing, right? Well, I'd like to congratulate Ms. Lowry on surviving the Canadian legal system. It's unfortunate she had to go through that, but uh, I'm hoping with enough public outrage uh, the governments might rethink some of these laws. It's interesting we can get cops and retired cops and Crown counsels and defense lawyers all agreeing on the same legal argument. It's, well, it's time for the government to take a look at that. Lee, do you have a question for uh, for the former RCMP officer? Do you have a question actually, for Ron? Actually, I do. I'm the one place where where I've, I, I'm I'm having a hard time understanding is that, um, for, for example, I had a friend last week that was stopped on a roadside screening. He blew point zero seven. He had his car impounded for three days and received a, a two hundred dollar fine. Now, this was a this was somebody that was like operating a motor vehicle at the time that the police were finding him impaired. I I'm not understanding why there's such a ridiculous financial burden on an IRP as compared to somebody that's actually operating a motor vehicle. And and IRP is IRP is what again? Immediate roadside um, prohibition. Okay. No. All right. I don't know if it's my side or your side, but I'm having connection problems. But if I can just really briefly go through the history, I, I think that I, I might uh, answer that question there. Okay. And uh, in the past, there was an incredible impaired driving problem, and uh, the sanctions were usually $50. And uh, it got so bad that if you were a police anywhere in Canada, after your fourth or fifth car that you stopped on a Friday, Saturday night, you had an impaired driver. And then very much... Due to the media, thanks to the media, they changed the public perception, so impaired was actually a, a serious problem. 
And then uh, the police started setting up a roadblock system like in, in the Scandinavian uh, method. And that started to uh, tell people that it was possible to actually get stopped and, and checked for this. And then the government came up with a really neat tool called the 24-hour suspension in, in British Columbia anyway. And if the driver was stopped, uh, he was borderline impaired, then the police officer could take his license for 24 hours. The driver understood that they were getting a break, and there was no fine, there was no points involved. As long as the driver didn't uh, drive in 24 hours, that, that was the end of it. And then people started tinkering with the impaired driving laws because uh, if, if they wanted the optics of being tough on crime or whatnot, and we end up with the current debacle where... It's well, let me ask you, Ron. Ron, Ron, let me ask you. Ron, let me ask you about that. Let's get to the cut, the cut to the the chase on this issue, and that is, the police can go to your home with this legislation up to two hours after you arrived home to uh, to demand and administer a breathalyzer. What do you make of that? In days gone by, the police always had two hours to do the breathalyzer, and that was. Uh, targeting like fatal hit and runs, serious accidents where the the suspects will leave the scene, go home and start uh, uh, drinking and then you would show up at the door and then read them his rights and uh, make the arrest and extrapolate how much you had to drink but you needed reasonable probable grounds for all this. It wasn't, you weren't going door to door. Uh, somebody drinking by the pool didn't have to worry about the police knocking on the door and demanding a a breathalyzer, I, I think that might have something to do with a, a miswording on the on the law. That was never the intention, but as you can see, this is what happens when people aren't using common sense. Yeah. Lee, what has been what has left the most sour taste with you of this entire experience? Oh, there's quite a few things, Roy. Um, probably first of all, um, going forward I, I, I believe that the RCMP now have my number for sure. I mean, I'm not worried about being pulled over as, as I follow the law. Um, I just, my concern is that I'm going to be treated differently because I have challenged them and proved them to be untrustworthy. Not all of them. I'm certain that not all police officers would deal with this situation. But when I look at the police report um, as compared to what my video actually shows, I mean, there's blatant perjury in there. And, and going forward, when I, I get pulled over, I'm sure that, or if I get pulled over, if a police officer sees my driver's license, am I a target now? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, I received an email from Ron this morning. And Ron, you want to say something specifically about the interaction between police and citizens. Can you get to that, please? If, if I can respond to Lee, first of all, um, there is no, you will not have a problem with that. There are lots of complaints that come in. Uh, you probably have a, a lot, uh, a lot of support from the police community. There's uh, no doubt a lot of cops are, are listening to this, reading about this, and they're just shaking their head. And I have a very short little uh, comment on here. Okay, and, go, go uh, ahead and do I, that, Ron. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, please. Uh, the police are sometimes off base because they forget that the role is as an advocate for the victim, the witnesses, the community, and yes, even the suspect. Policing isn't about getting bad guys. It's about uh, transforming a crappy situation into a less than crappy situation. And this entails a, a lot of diplomacy and bedside manner. 
I'd like to address the police community out there and tell them that community trust and respect are the main tools of the job. It's not your car and your laptop and, and your gun. If you are enforcing predatory laws, you become the boogeyman. You lose that respect and mm-hmm. you don't get it back. If people fear you, they will hate you and they won't talk to you. And if they don't talk to you, you cannot do the job. People should know that they are breaking the law because they have common sense. And if you're arresting somebody who doesn't know that they're breaking the law, then something is wrong. I, and Absolutely. To uh, my police colleagues and ex-colleagues, if you disagree with the law, then email your local representative, CC the leaders of all the parties, be polite, be brief, and ask for a response. I've dealt with members who figure that their job is to administer the law, not to comment on it, and that's wrong because the police deal with all different segments of the community, and they are in a better position to criticize predatory legislation than anybody else. Okay. It's not a disciplined breach to actually contact a representative uh, on a policy or law that affects the public. And to the public, if you disagree with an interaction with the police, complain. All the complaint agencies take these complaints seriously. It's usually handled by a, 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 a senior member, and, uh, yeah, they'll get the answer for okay. you. A lot of times it's just a uh, misunderstanding. Okay. The important thing was for us, I wanted Lee to have an opportunity to hear the points that you made in the, in the, uh, in the email to me. Lee, you have this, the backing of so many people across this country. I can't tell you how many emails I received. Plus, police officers have responded, as Mr. Casey has, and they're on your side. They think this is absolutely an um, untenable situation. Lee, thanks very much for coming back. And, Ron, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Roy. Take care. Jeff Madison joins me now, criminal lawyer in Hamilton. He's a former Crown attorney. He's a partner at Ross and McBride in uh, in Hamilton, one of the best criminal lawyers in this country. So, Jeff, I know you've been listening to Lee Lowry. I know you know the story. You heard the RCMP officer, the former officer. So Ms. Lowry won her case, the charge dismissed, but it cost her $3,500 to accomplish this, not to mention the time involved and the potential damage to her reputation. Your thoughts on the legislation and the manner in which police dealt with this? Sure. Uh, Roy, to begin with, I was intrigued by Ron using the phrase predatory legislation. I don't think I've ever heard a police officer, current or retired, refer to a section of the criminal code as being predatory in nature. We normally think of predators as evil and uh, working contrary to the interests of justice. So I, I thought that was an interesting turn of phrase. In my world, we might choose to call it unconstitutional and potentially ready for Roy Charter infringing. Here's, here's what the legislative scheme now does. Before amendments that were passed by the criminal code, and this isn't any technical playing with language, these are amendments to the criminal code passed by your government and mine and declared in force a couple months ago. The law used to be the focus was, what was the person's blood alcohol level at the time of driving? Now the shift is, what's the person's blood alcohol level at the time the test is taken? And the test could be two hours later. And so you have the situation where Lee has had something to drink. There's a tip. She goes home. She may have had more drinks at home. In a period of time of less than two hours later, the police knock at the door. Now, they can't enter the home to arrest her. They don't have an arrest warrant to enter the home. They got to say to her, would you come out? We want to talk to you. And she comes out. And they basically then say, we have reason to believe that you have a blood alcohol level now over the legal limit and have been driving within the last two hours. We're going to demand that you provide a sample of your breath into a, a proper approved device, intoxilizer or breathalyzer. 
she must have blown in to the device and blown over and got charged with having a blood alcohol level over 80 within two hours of her last driving. That's the text on the code now. Okay, so obviously we're not having the best of luck with uh, with, with your phone connection, Jeff. When you when you think of this legislation and the fact that cops can come to your house up to two hours later, I've heard from. I listen. Let me finish. I've talked. I've heard from police officers across this country in the last week, and predatory was one of the most gentle terms they used. I think it's. I think it's. Uh, it's unreasonable. I think it's ridiculous. I didn't think it needs to be changed because you see what happens is like the burden is now on her to show that she, after she last drove, yeah. consumed enough alcohol to account for her blood alcohol level over the limit. She has. That's basically for her. That's how she can win the case and presumably did. In the meantime, there are provincial laws that take away your license and your vehicle for a period of time on the mere fact of being charged. So what happens is put her, the, the burden winds up being shifted to the person who is not driving, hasn't driven for maybe an hour or two, and they still have to show why the blood alcohol level is, why it is, at the time that they provide a test later, that was never the purpose of the legislation in the criminal code as it was, but they had the idea. They wanted to stop people who might have, let's say, been in an accident or consumed a fair amount of alcohol, come home with the view of covering their tracks, drink a lot later. So with the view of closing that loophole, they changed the whole system around and put it on its head and put in this new offense. And now put, they're going to be putting a lot more people through the mill. People can still win, but that doesn't get you your money back. It doesn't get your money back, and it can hurt your reputation as well. Sure, because you now have a, an FPS number, a federal police number, because you had to provide fingerprints and photographs. Now, I don't think that Lee needs to be worried that they're going to target her because she won her case. In fact, if what, she, if what you say and Ron are, are, have said are right and police have sympathy, they may well say, hey, this poor woman, you know, let's cut her a break even because she got charged under this ridiculous law. And unfortunately, too, Roy, it's not a matter of police officers writing their elected officials to get it changed. It just came in. They're not going to change it. Yeah. What it's going to take is, I'd like to think, criminal defense lawyers challenging it, saying this is unconstitutional because it criminalizes behavior which in is, is not inherently illegal. It shouldn't inherently be illegal. All right. Two hours later, your blood alcohol level's over, and it shifts the burden of proof. It shifts the presumption of innocence. Okay. It essentially is fundamentally unjust. Counselor, it's good talking to you. Thank you so much. I'm sure this is going to go further into the courts, maybe even the Supreme Court of Canada at some I point. I hope so. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, right. Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer in Hamilton, Ross McBride. He's a partner there. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.